You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Thus nature had here providentially supplied that which our commanders had so singularly neglected to provide, a defensive line upon which to rally, with a prominent knoll upon which to place the battery, with front covered by an almost impenetrable growth of underbrush. Soon the shells gave warning, and the skirmish fire grew stronger and deeper. Then came the long lines of bristling steel, whose stern-faced bearers, protected and yet impeded by the heavy undergrowth, came pressing on, until our cannons' loud acceptance of their challenge, and the infantry's crashing volleys, caused the assailants to hesitate, break in confusion, and hastily retire. This temporary defeat of the attacking forces had given time for caring for the wounded and for the hasty strengthening of the defensive line. It had also allowed the smoke to clear away, thus affording a better view of the Confederate line as they again moved forward in a charge of increased impetuosity. The ear-piercing and peculiar rebel yell of the men in gray and the answering cheers of the boys in blue rose and fell with a varying tide of battle, and with the hoarse and scarcely distinguishable orders of the officers, the screaming and bursting of shell, the swishing sound of canister, the roaring volley firing, the death screams of the stricken and struggling horses, and the cries and groans of the wounded, formed an indescribable impression which can never be effaced from memory. Quickly came the orders, sharp and clear, shrapnel, two seconds, one second, canister, and then as the enemy made preparations for their final dash, double canister was ordered and delivered with such rapidity that the separate discharges were blended into one continuous roar. Captain Andrew Hickenlooper, 5th Independent Battery, Ohio Light Artillery. I was then commanded by Major General Bragg to attack the enemy in a position to the front and right. The brigade moved forward in fine style, marching through an open field under heavy fire and halfway up an elevation covered with an almost impenetrable thicket upon which the enemy was posted. On the left, a battery opened that raked our flank, while a steady fire of musketry extended along the entire front. Under this combined fire, our line was broken and the troops fell back, but they were soon rallied and advanced to the contest. Four times the position was charged, and four times the assault proved unavailing. The strong and almost inaccessible position of the enemy, his infantry well covered, and his artillery skillfully posted and served, was found to be impregnable to infantry alone. We were repulsed. Colonel Randall Lee Gibson, Brigade Commander, Army of the Mississippi.
Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode number 118 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. And to start off, uh, those quotes were about the fighting for the hornet's nest. But just a footnote concerning the first quote, and that is when Hickenlooper was speaking of shrapnel, canister, and double canister, he was referring to the commands given for the type of shot to be fired from the guns of the battery. And when he mentioned two seconds and one second, that was a reference to how short the fuses were to be cut on the shells so that they would explode two seconds and one second after leaving the muzzle of the cannon. And you know that a crisis was approaching if they were cutting the fuses for one second. And that things were reaching a crisis point is confirmed by the command to then switch to double canister, since that load was only used in the most desperate of circumstances on a battlefield, when the charging enemy was so close they were in danger of overrunning the guns. Well, so there you go. We just wanted to be sure you understood uh, what he was talking about there. So, at any rate, maybe we should just start again. Oh, hey everyone, I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. As y'all recall, we used the last episode to talk about the death of Albert Sidney Johnston during the Battle of Shiloh. But before that, in episode number 116, we had discussed the fighting on the Union right and how, by about 1130, Sherman and McClernand's defensive line on either side of the crossroads of the Corinth and Hamburg-Purdy roads had finally collapsed under the relentless Confederate pressure. We left off with both sides regrouping after the desperate struggle on this section of the battlefield. Sherman and McClernand's men, having been driven from their position, fell back to the vicinity of a large clearing called Jones Field, about a half mile north of the crossroads, where they began to rally. The victorious Confederates around the crossroads and among McClernand's captured camps were also regrouping since brigades and parts of brigades from three different corps had become intermingled during the attack. Sorting out the mix of troops was further complicated by the fact that key officers had gone down, ammunition was running low and needed to be replenished, and many of the rebel soldiers were leaving the ranks to plunder the captured Yankee camps. And so the Confederate advance on this, the western section of the battlefield, lost its momentum, and there was a pause in the action here. But as the soldiers here caught their breath and sorted themselves out, from the east the sound of heavy firing continued and was evidence that the Federals in that sector were fiercely resisting the Confederate advance there. As we shift our attention back to the Union left, we're first going to head way over to the far Union left, where, as y'all will hopefully recall, we said the brigade of Colonel David Stewart had been positioned over near the river in order to guard the Federal's far left flank. That's right. We said Stewart's brigade was actually part of Sherman's division, but Sherman had detached the men and given them their assignment when he had first encamped his division behind Pittsburgh Landing back in March. And since then, Stewart's brigade of one Illinois and two Ohio regiments had been guarding the Army's far-left flank. 
And hopefully y'all recall further that we talked about how, after a Confederate cavalry captain named Lockett spied Stewart's Yankees going about their routine Sunday morning business in their camp, Lockett somehow overestimated Stewart's numbers and misinterpreted the federal activity that he observed. And so he sent Sidney Johnston an exaggerated report that said an entire enemy division was advancing threateningly down the river road. And Albert Sidney Johnston, not knowing Lockett's report was incorrect, had dispatched two brigades, led by Chalmers and Jackson, to counter what he apparently believed was an advance by Grant's reserve. It wasn't until around 11 a.m. that Jackson's and Chalmers' brigades arrived in front of Stuart's position after a long roundabout march through difficult terrain. Meanwhile, Stuart, alerted by the sound of heavy fighting over to the west, and also by a message from Prentiss bringing official word that heavy fighting was going on, well, Stuart had had plenty of time to draw his brigade up in line of battle behind Locust Grove Run, and during the wait for the rebels to appear, Stuart and his troops, all equally green and inexperienced, became increasingly jittery. When Chalmers and Jackson finally arrived in front of Stuart's position, there were nine Confederate regiments against three Federal. The rebels deployed with Chalmers on the right, closer to the river, and Jackson on the left. Two batteries of artillery from Alabama and Georgia added the weight of their fire to the Confederate assault across Locust Grove Run. Under bombardment from the rebel guns, and as the more numerous Confederate infantry pressed forward, the colonel of the 71st Ohio, a fellow named Mason, panicked and ran for the rear. His regiment wavered, with some following Mason and others standing their ground. But then the regiment's second-in-command fell mortally wounded, and with that the 71st came apart, and most of the men ran northward as fast as their legs would carry them. The flight of the 71st Ohio put the position of the 55th Illinois in jeopardy. The 55th was holding what had been the center of Stuart's line, but with the 71st gone, their right flank was turned, and in short order, the inexperienced men of the 55th broke for the rear just as their neighbors had done a few minutes before. To their credit, most of the 55th Illinois rallied about 200 yards to the rear, where the more stalwart elements of the 71st Ohio joined them. Meanwhile, Stuart's remaining regiment, the 54th Ohio Zouaves, had held firm before falling back in good order to take up position alongside the 55th Illinois. This gave Stuart a more or less continuous line again, although by that time he probably only had about 800 men with him. They faced five times their number of Confederates, and to make matters worse, the Yankees now had a steep-sided ravine immediately behind them. So there was nothing for them to do now but stand and fight. Up until that point, Chalmers and Jackson's Confederates had things go pretty much their own way, but now their attack began to lose momentum. Chalmers' Mississippians began running out of ammo and had to pull back and wait for the ammunition wagons to bring up a new supply of cartridges. In addition to that, some of the men from both Confederate units had fallen out of the ranks to explore the overrun camps of Stuart's brigade. And on top of that, just as the Confederate attack was weakening, the remaining Illinoisans and Ohioans were fighting desperately to hold their line on the near rim of the ravine. Even the Yankee drummer boys laid down their instruments, 
picked up muskets from the dead and wounded, and joined the firing line. And so somehow, against what should have been overwhelming force, the Union defenders here held on for another two hours. Part of what made Stuart's stubborn stand possible was the presence to his right of Brigadier General John MacArthur and three Illinois regiments from W.H.L. Wallace's division. Bonus points if you remember that we said that Wallace had sent MacArthur over toward the river to try and effect a link-up with Stuart's brigade. MacArthur, in fact, hadn't been able to stretch the line far enough east to link up with Stuart, and so there was still a quarter-mile gap. But nevertheless, MacArthur's men were able to take some of the heat off of Stuart's remnant by drawing the attention of much of Jackson's Confederate brigade. MacArthur's Illinoisans became hotly engaged with the left wing of Jackson's brigade. In fact, the 9th Illinois, on the right of MacArthur's line, suffered a total of 361 killed and wounded, which was 62% of its strength and that would rank it first in losses among all Union regiments at Shiloh. Meanwhile, to the right of MacArthur's position, the Federal divisions of Hurlbut and Prentice had come up on either side of what was left of Prentice's division. As y'all will recall, we said that these Union formations were able to form a new defensive line north of Prentice's captured camps with little interference from the rebels. Hurlbut's two brigades held a line from the left flank of MacArthur's 9th Illinois, through an orchard of blooming peach trees, and to a farm lane where Prentice rallied what was left of his division. And then W.H.L. Wallace's two brigades continued the line along the farm lane to where it ended at the Corinth Road. In fact, Wallace's two rightmost regiments deployed to the west of the Corinth Road so that their line almost reached to the left flank of the position that McClernand held before being forced back in late morning. And Hurlbut and Wallace only had two brigades here because Hurlbut had already detached one of his brigades to help Sherman, while Wallace had sent MacArthur over to try to extend the Union line to Stuart's position. So that left both Hurlbut and W.H.L. Wallace with only two brigades. Exactly. And so, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, the Union line consisted of Stewart to the east, nearest the Tennessee River, and then moving west, beyond a quarter-mile gap, you'd have MacArthur. Still moving west, you have Hurlbut, then Prentice's Remnant, and then W.H.L. Wallace, and then on the Union right, of course, were McClernand and Sherman. The reason that Hurlbut, Prentice, and Wallace were given breathing space in which to arrange their lines was that the center section of Confederate line was extremely thinly manned. P.G.T. Beauregard, from his post in the Confederate rear, had been consistently sending reinforcements forward toward the sound of the heaviest fighting, which was on the Confederate left, where Sherman's Yankees were making their stand. Meanwhile, Sidney Johnston, leading from the front, had also started to order brigades to shift to the left, and then he sent Chalmers and Jackson to the right in response to Lockett's erroneous report of a federal division advancing down the river road. The result of Beauregard's actions and Albert Sidney Johnston's decisions was that by 11 a.m., the Confederates had eight brigades facing Sherman and McClernand on the west end of the battlefield, 
two brigades assaulting Stuart to the east near the river, four more brigades in reserve positions or moving up toward the front lines, and just one brigade in the center facing Hurlbut, Prentice, and W.H.L. Wallace. And so the rebels were in no position to launch a major assault on those Federals while they were forming a new defensive line running from the Peach Orchard west to the Corinth Road. And thus Wallace, Prentice, and Hurlbut were given the gift of time to arrange their lines. Speaking of time, it was around that time that Braxton Bragg and Leonidas Polk met on the battlefield. As Confederate Corps commanders, they had by this point become almost irrelevant on the battlefield. Why? Well, once again, we have to heap coals on the head of Beauregard's chief of staff, Thomas Jordan, for his faulty attack orders. The defective orders that all but ensured that the Confederate Corps would become intermingled in a jumbled mess once the battle started. And that's exactly what happened. By the time Bragg and Polk happened to meet on the battlefield, no Confederate unit above the level of brigade had any coherence left at all. So Bragg and Polk, after briefly discussing the situation, decided to improvise a new command arrangement that might hopefully begin to bring some order from the chaos. Under the new arrangement, Bragg agreed to take care of the right, Polk said he would oversee the center, and that left Hardee to direct the fighting on the left. And what of Sidney Johnston? Well, as we said in the last episode, Sidney Johnston, having decided to lead from the front, by that time was acting in the role of a brigade or division commander, even to personally directing the actions of single Confederate regiments, and so he was no longer functioning as an army commander. As a result, Bragg and Polk were left to try to salvage the overall situation by attempting to cobble together this new ad hoc command arrangement for the battlefield. But despite their efforts, most Confederate attacks continued to be mostly disjointed affairs carried out by lone brigades, perhaps joined by a neighboring regiment or two. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. 
And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. The first Confederate contact with what would become known as the Hornet's Nest came at around 10.30 or so, when the extreme right of the major rebel assault on McClernand and Sherman stumbled into Duncan Field and quickly learned that a strong Union force was posted there. Colonel Robert Shaver's Arkansas Brigade was moving on the extreme right flank of the massive 8 Brigade Confederate attack on McClernand and Sherman's position around the crossroads. Shaver's attempt to outflank McClernand's left brought him into a cotton field owned by a farmer named Joseph Duncan. On the other side of Duncan's cotton field was W.H.L. Wallace's two Federal Brigades, positioned along the old farm lane later called the Sunken Road. Wallace's two brigades here were led by Colonel James M. Tuttle and Colonel Thomas W. Sweeney. As Shaver's Confederates entered the cotton field, the Iowans of Tuttle's brigade opened up on them. The rebels, particularly in the 3rd Confederate Infantry, on Shaver's right, suffered a number of casualties and quickly fell back to take cover in the woods to their rear. Shaver then withdrew his brigade a short distance and reformed, and thus the first shots in defense of the hornet's nest had been fired. The first real rebel assault against the new federal position was delivered by the small brigade of Colonel William H. Stevens. PGT Beauregard had sent Stevens toward the front with orders to find the heaviest fighting and jump in. Stevens' division commander, Major General Benjamin F. Cheatham, joined the brigade as it went forward. Cheatham led Stevens' brigade to the right of the fighting raging around the crossroads, and he probably learned from Shaver that a strong enemy force was posted at the far end of Duncan Field. And so Cheatham deployed a Mississippi artillery battery to support Stevens' men and then sent the brigade forward into the attack. And so, about 11 o'clock, Stevens led his men against the hornet's nest. Stevens' brigade wasn't in the best shape even before the attack into the teeth of the Federal defense. A portion of the brigade had been ordered away to guard the bridge over Lick Creek, so Stevens probably only had about a 1,000 men total. And Stevens himself was having a bad day. He had been sick and was extremely weak, but still insisted on accompanying his command into battle. Just before the assault, though, his horse was shot and threw Stevens, causing further troubles for the ailing officer. With Stevens incapacitated, Cheatham led the brigade forward. But there was little chance that the one Kentucky and two Tennessee regiments would break the Federal line. The defenders, again Wallace's men, knelt or lay prone to take advantage of the cover offered by the shallowly eroded bed of the farm lane. The lane ran through open woods, and there were dense thickets of blackjack and hickory all along the Union line. The Yankees had mostly clear fields of fire through the, as yet, mostly leafless trees and shrubs, while the Confederates struggled to advance through the hindering terrain. 
The men of the 12th Iowa and 14th Iowa waited until the rebels were only about 30 yards away and then triggered a killing volley that felled scores of the enemy. Cheatham's men halted and attempted to return fire, but a second devastating volley from the Iowans staggered them and they began to fall back. As the Confederates started to withdraw, Colonel William Shaw of the 14th Iowa led his men forward in a countercharge, and the left wing of the 12th Iowa went with them. The soldiers in blue struggled forward through the same thickets that had hindered the rebel advance, but they pressed on past the line of enemy dead and wounded that marked the high-water mark of the Confederate assault. Finally, seeing that no one from Prentice's command to his left was advancing in support of his charge, Shaw called a halt and then took his men back to their position in the farm lane. Cheatham's troops had suffered heavy casualties in their assault on the hornet's nest. The flag of the 6th Tennessee had fallen to the ground and a half dozen times as the men bearing it went down, but each time it had been lifted up again. The soldier who finally carried the banner back to safety as the regiment fell back was not a member of the color guard, since all 12 members had fallen defending the flag. Fourteen of the six Tennessee officers had fallen, as had 226 enlisted men. Cheatham's other two regiments had fared little better. The general himself was slightly wounded. At some point around 11 a.m. and Cheatham's attack, Hurlbut, Prentice, and W.H.L. Wallace each received a visit from Ulysses S. Grant. Grant spoke to each division commander, and Prentice remembered Grant giving him the last orders he would receive to hold his position, quote, at all hazards, end quote. When an officer in the Civil War received such an order, he understood that the spot he was holding was an extremely vital one and that he was expected to defend that position to the last man. And Prentice would take Grant's order literally, setting the stage for the future dramatic events that would play out with a hornet's nest that day. The next major Confederate attack to cross Duncan Field and hit the hornet's nest was delivered around 11.30, and it numbered 3,700 men. It was an assortment of units from four different rebel brigades, and together with artillery support, it represented the largest force that would assault the hornet's nest. The attack was put together by Brigadier General Thomas C. Hindman from Arkansas, assisted by Brigadier General Alexander P. Stewart of Tennessee. The assault, organized by Hindman and Stewart, would include Shaver's Brigade, which had rallied after its initial brush with the hornet's nest, and then among the other units rounded up for the attack were the 16th Alabama, 8th Arkansas, and 55th Tennessee, all of Wood's Brigade. Wood himself, though, was out of the fight, since, in a friendly fire incident, his horse had been shot and the wounded animal threw wood and then dragged him along the ground for a considerable distance. Also participating in the attack was the right wing of Claiborne's brigade, which at that point consisted of the 23rd Tennessee and about 60 men of the badly shot-up 6th Mississippi. Claiborne himself would lead his men into the fight. And so when Hindman's attack went in, it included the cobbled-together equivalent of more than two full brigades, about 3,700 men, and, as we've already said, it would prove to be the day's largest assault against the center sector of the Union line, formed by Wallace's and Hurlbut's divisions and Prentice's remnant. Hindman's assault nevertheless ended in anticlimax. 
A Union cannonball struck the general's horse, and either the concussion or the violent fall put the Arkansan out of the fight. Shaver, too, suffered the loss of his mount, and unable to secure a new one, he found it impossible to direct the actions of his brigade. With Hindman down and Shaver floundering about without a horse, and with Wood already gone, there was a collapse of command and control among the attacking Confederates. When Shaver's men began to run out of ammunition and fell back, that effectively took the steam out of the assault, since his was the only full brigade participating, and the other Confederate units soon withdrew without pressing home their attacks. The Confederates had advanced only about 80 yards, or a third of the way across Duncan Field, before beating their retreat back to the safety of the wood line on their side of the clearing. It was now about noon, and thus far the Wallace-Prentice-Hurlbut position had repulsed two organized rebel assaults. But this sector still hadn't seen anything like the overwhelming massed Confederate attack that had driven Sherman's and McClernand's divisions back from the crossroads a short time before. That no such mass attack had hit the hornet's nest was due to PGT Beauregard's consistent diversion of reinforcements to the rebel left and to Sidney Johnston's thinning of Confederate forces in the center section of the battlefield. But now Braxton Bragg had taken over active direction of operations on this part of the field, and shortly after 12 o'clock, he would send in yet another assault in another attempt to break the Union center. The trouble was Bragg endeavored to continue the attack with the single battle-worthy brigade that was immediately available to him. That hapless unit was commanded by Colonel Randall L. Gibson, whose account we quoted at the very beginning of the episode. Gibson's brigade consisted of one Arkansas and three Louisiana regiments, and as Rich said, shortly after 12 o'clock, Bragg sent them forward against the hornet's nest. Gibson's men advanced up a gentle slope across the wheat field of a farmer named Davis, while Federal infantry and artillery fired across the open ground on their left front and right front. But directly in front of the advancing rebels, the Union lines were silent. The Arkansans and Louisianans topped a slight rise of ground and started the general descent toward a large, dense thicket in the center of the Union position. They were just entering the thicket's outer edge when a hurricane of fire lashed out at them. The Federal defenders had waited until the advancing rebels were mere yards away and then unleashed a deadly point-blank volley into the enemy ranks. In their after-action reports, all of Gibson's colonels called that volley an ambush, and so it must have seemed to them as the dense underbrush hid the Yankees from sight until their muskets flashed and their bullets swept death through the startled Confederate ranks. Even as they halted and started to return fire, the rebel soldiers could scarcely see an enemy to shoot at. Colonel B.L. Hodge of the 19th Louisiana noticed his men, quote, looking through the bushes as if hunting an object for their aim, end quote. But unable to see a Union soldier, they simply had to fire back at the flashes of the muskets in front of them. Colonel H.W. Allen of the 4th Louisiana later reported sadly that he had lost many of his, quote, bravest and best men in the thick brushwood without ever seeing the enemy, end quote. Stubbornly, though, Gibson's men hung on, loading and firing toward their best guess at the enemy's location in the thicket. 
With his men being decimated by the relentless Yankee musketry, Colonel Hodge ordered his 19th Louisiana to cease firing and charge into the thicket with their bayonets. They plunged into the underbrush, but after 20 or 30 paces, found it impossible to advance through the thicket. Unable to move forward and come to grips with the Yankees, Hodge ordered his men to withdraw, which they did, firing as they fell back slowly into the open field again. There, however, seeing his men shot down and knowing there was little hope of breaking the enemy line, Hodge gave the order for his regiment to retreat. By that time, Gibson's other regiments were also falling back, with or without orders from their colonels. How long Gibson's brigade fought the Yankees sheltered in the thicket is uncertain. Colonel James L. Geddes of the 8th Iowa thought it was nearly an hour. Equally uncertain is how many times Gibson's brigade renewed its attack. Gibson himself reported a total of four assaults, while several of his colonels mentioned three. In the chaos of battle, the confusion over the number of assaults isn't surprising. What is certain is that Gibson's battered brigade advanced several times across the Davis wheat field and attacked the Union position that the Confederates were soon calling the Hornet's Nest because of the incessant buzzing sound of the enemy bullets passing them as they vainly struggled through the underbrush. But each time that Gibson's regiments went forward, the result was the same. Braxton Bragg became frustrated that the brigade couldn't break the enemy line, and apparently thinking Gibson an incompetent commander, sometimes sent orders for renewed advances directly to Gibson's regimental commanders. But Gibson was not incompetent. He had simply been given an impossible assignment by Bragg, and no matter how valiantly he and his men strove to break the Union line, each of their attacks were thrown back. By about 2 p.m., Gibson's command had taken staggering losses and was completely fought out. The Hornet's Nest position had held in the face of some six or seven rebel assaults, but because of the weakness of the Confederate center, those attacks had had little weight behind them. As we'll see next time, the heavy blows were being struck elsewhere on the Shiloh battlefield. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Shiloh, In Hell Before Night, by James Lee McDonough. The title of this book on Shiloh comes from the story that was told of Colonel Isaac C. Pugh of the badly shot up 41st Illinois, who called out to reinforcements entering the battle, Fill your canteens, boys. Some of you will be in hell before night, and you'll need the water which could have hardly been encouraging to the men going toward the firing line, but it does make for a snappy book title. Anyway, as always, you can find all of our book recommendations by heading over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then it's also at the website that you can sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. You sign up through PayPal, and for just $5 a month, you get two extra episodes of the podcast each month. In June, the members' episodes were on Confederate privateers and on the regulars of the U.S. Army. And then with this month's members' episodes, we're going to be starting a little series on the Andrews Raid in April 1862, which is also known as the Great Locomotive Chase. 
Yeah, we're excited about these upcoming members episodes on the Andrews Raid. Uh, it's an exciting story, very dramatic, uh, so much so that it has been the subject of two movies. Uh, one, a very popular 1956 Walt Disney production. So anyway, uh, if you'd like to get those upcoming shows and also have access to all 13 of the other members' episodes that we've done so far, just head over to the website and sign up to join the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade. As Tracy said, it's only $5 a month, and besides getting those extra episodes each month, it's also a great way for you to support what we're doing here with the podcast. We also wanted to remind you that you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed at the website. We've had a lively debate on the Facebook page the last week or two about the ongoing controversy over the Confederate flag. A lively is a good way to describe it. We've had folks supporting both viewpoints chiming in and even had a European perspective. And so if you'd like to be a part of that discussion or would like to just check out what others have said, you can go to the show's Facebook page. And as Tracy said, there are links to everything, uh, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, the Strawfoot Brigade, the answers to all of life's most pressing questions, uh, all at www.civilwarpodcast.org. And as we wrap things up, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. And we thank them, as always, for that, just as we thank all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.